Greetings one and all. My name is Jeremy Walker and you're listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon, a podcast from Media Gratii in which we work our way through the sermons preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, determined to learn from him more about Jesus Christ and how we might preach him, how to know him, walk in his ways and to speak of him to others. If you're able to leave a review, then we'd be grateful. It makes a difference to uh, how many other people find out about what we're doing. And if you'd like to visit mediagratii.org, you'll find some other similar resources there, including my Word in Season devotions and John Snyder's The Whole Council podcast. You can follow us also at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter, where you'll usually get some daily updates from the, the week's sermons. And you can sign up for a prayer letter at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can get the, the weekly featured sermon. And this week, our featured sermon is 858, The Fullness of Jesus, the Treasury of the Saints. So if you don't know, each week we work our way through a sermon a day, and this week it's 857 to 863. Each week, a featured sermon, the topic of this podcast, where we try and concentrate on some representative declaration of Spurgeon's. Here then is his sermon on John chapter 1 and verse 16. Of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. It was preached on the 28th of February in 1869 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. These are written by John the Evangelist, says Spurgeon, these words, and we understand them of our Lord Jesus in the whole of his character and work, looking beyond his earthly life to see him in his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his session at the right hand of God and his second advent and beholding him as the all-sufficient Saviour. We then this day behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we, that is the whole range of the saints in all ages past and in all periods to come, we receive out of this fullness super abundant grace. So here is Spurgeon on his great uh, chief, most delightful theme, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He uh, never tires, it seems, of coming back to make him known, holding him up, seeing him in in all the splendour of his being and his doing, uh, enjoying him, delighting to both observe him and in observing him to make him known to others. Now what Spurgeon does in this sermon uh, concerning this fullness that is in Christ is to work through it in a really uh, interesting homiletical structure that is the 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 mode of teaching the way that he's instructing it's a simple clear and compelling progression and you can't do it in every sermon and Spurgeon doesn't do it in every sermon but he does it well here in a way that uh, for preachers makes us think am I ordering my material in a way that grips the memory that uh, strikes the affections that carries the conscience that sweeps along the congregation as I preach. For Spurgeon, that means in this sermon, one glorious person, two precious doctrines, three experiences, and four duties. One person, two doctrines, three experiences, four duties. Let's work our way through these and see if we can understand how Spurgeon brings Christ to bear upon the hearts of his people. 
So in discussing this text, he says, I first remind you of the one glorious person concerning whom this verse is written. There are other persons, he says in the verse, but they're comparatively insignificant. If you didn't notice, that was me and you. So all we are the receivers. We occupy the humblest place. It is of his fullness that we have all received. We know that this is no other than that august personage, that that high and majestic individual whom God calls the word or the speech of God. Called so because God in nature has revealed himself, as it were, inarticulately and indistinctly. But in his son he has revealed himself as a man declares his inmost thoughts by distinct and intelligible speech. So first up you've got the uh, the, the the deity of Jesus Christ. You've got the, the majesty that belongs to him as the one who uh, by whom God reveals himself and so who becomes to us the revealer of God. But Spurgeon wants to make sure that we don't in thinking of him as the divine word, uh, somehow reduce him to a mere word spoken and forgotten. No, he says the language is distinct, that the uh, the writer ascribes to Jesus the eternity which belongs to God. In the beginning was the word. He peremptorily claims divinity for him. That means uh, immediately and even even quite abruptly, the word was God. He ascribes to him the acts of God. Without him was not anything made that was made. He ascribes to him self-existence, which is the essential characteristic of God. In him was life. He claims for him a nature peculiar to God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And the word is the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. No writer could be more explicit in his utterances, and beyond all question he sets forth the proper deity of that blessed one of whom we all must receive if we would obtain eternal salvation. So the one glorious person, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the eternal word. Yet John, says Spurgeon, does not fail to set forth that our Lord was also man. So you have this person, these two natures, but one person. Where God has treasured up the fullness of his grace is in a person so august that heaven and earth tremble at the majesty of his presence, and yet in a person so humble that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. For that word dwelt among us. So Spurgeon's making sure now that we have this comprehensive and scripturally accurate sense of who Jesus Christ is. And now, in order that we might not make any uh, mistakes, he tells us that the chapter continually enters caveats and disclaimers against all others. That the uh, the writer, John the Evangelist, bars the angels and shuts out cherubim and seraphim by saying, Without him was not anything made that was made. At the creation of the world, no ministering spirit may intrude a finger. Angels may sing over what Jesus creates, but as the builder of all things, he stands alone. John must decrease, Christ must increase. And what about Moses, the servant of God and of the Lamb? Even he is excluded from the glory of this text. Moses, says our preacher, must sit down at the foot of the throne with the tables of stone in his hands, but Jesus sits on the throne and stretches out the silver scepter to his people. And so, uh, like uh, on the mountain, when Moses and Elijah were, were there, 
all these others vanish from our minds and our spirit sees no man but Jesus only. Spurgeon tells us that it becomes us as ministers, if we're preachers, to be constantly making much of Christ, to make him indeed the first, the last and the midst of all our discourses. And it becomes all believers, whenever they deal with matters of salvation, to set Jesus on high and to crown him with many crowns. Give him the best of your thoughts and works and affections, for he it is who fills all things and to whom all things should pay homage. So, point one, one person, one glorious person, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, the eternal word who became flesh. It is this one of whom it is said that all we have received of his fullness and grace for grace. That brings us to the two precious doctrines that are in this text. Two precious doctrines, first of all, that all grace is treasured up in Christ Jesus and that all the saints have received all of grace out of the fullness of Christ. So Spurgeon here, although uh, you can see that his overall structure, that one, two, three, four progression is still there, he's actually, in terms of the, uh, the underlying intent, he's doing the exposition at this point. So he's hiding, if you like, his exposition application under this one, two, three, four structure. It's it's a good way of doing it to stop it becoming or feeling a little bit uh, dry or a little bit uh, inaccessible. So then, this master truth, all grace is treasured up in Christ Jesus. He is the repository of all the favour of God. What a word, says Spurgeon, his fullness. If I had no other text given me to preach from until all preaching should be ended, this might suffice. It's that sense that uh, as long as you're allowed to unpack the fullness of Jesus Christ, you'll never exhaust uh, what you have to say. In Christ, there's a fullness of grace to impart to us, and to that the text refers a fullness of pardoning grace, so that no sin can ever exceed his power to forgive, a fullness of justifying grace, so that he justifies the ungodly, a fullness of converting grace, so that he calls to him whom he pleases, a fullness of quickening grace, for he quickens whom he wills. Here is a fullness of purifying grace, for his blood cleanses us from all sin, and a further fullness of comforting grace, of sustaining grace, of satisfying grace, of restoring grace. Jesus has a fullness in whatever office you regard him and with whatsoever needs. It's a beautiful way of, of setting forth. You feel the, the sort of the avalanche of the preacher's rhetoric here, uh, sweeping down and, and sort of obliterating anything that's before it. Uh, you always imagine the, the congregation here being carried along on this wave of holy eloquence. No limit then in any gift or grace in Jesus Christ, but always full thereof. And Spurgeon says we really don't have time uh, to explain it all, but we should be enjoying it. Drink of it. Plunge into it. Uh, You'll know more than I can by any possibility tell. Although we've drawn upon the exchequer of his love to an extent so boundless that we cannot understand it, yet there is as much mercy and grace left in Christ as there was before, and it's a fullness still after all the saints have received of it. It's this infinite fullness that there is then in Christ Jesus. But there's a fullness of truth as well as grace, which is to say, everything which Christ says is not only true, but emphatically true. 
So you've got full of grace, now full of truth. Not true in in one sense, but in multiplied senses. True to the letter and to the jots and to the tittles. True today and true tomorrow and true forever. True to one saint, true to every saint. True at one season and true in all seasons. When Christ speaks, it is reliable. There's an abiding fullness of truth in Christ for everything that we need. There's no error, there's no confusion, there's no uh, uh, no dilution of this. Spurgeon says, in fact, I will defy any man to hold together a large congregation year after year with any other subject but Christ Jesus. You might have qualified that, a large congregation of true believers. You can tickle the ears of huge crowds with all manner of nonsense, but to, to hold together a congregation of godly men and women, especially a large one, it is Christ and Christ alone who must be the central theme of the ministry. And there's no, uh, no risk again of exhausting that. The theme of Jesus' love is inexhaustible, says Spurgeon. Though preachers may have dwelt upon it century after century, a fullness, a freshness and fullness still remain. Then he comes to his second doctrine, that all the saints have received all of grace out of the fullness of Christ. He seems to, to concentrate on the grace here, uh, but he, he picks up the truth again at the end. This tells us that the whole course of saintship is receptive. That is, uh, picking up that note of, of us being the receivers. Yes, the one glorious person in the text who's the, the central theme and, and the, the primary concern is our Lord Jesus Christ. We are the receivers, and that's the, the whole experience of being a Christian. None of the saints talk of what they gave. None of them speak of what came of themselves, but they all bear testimony without a solitary exception that they were all receivers from Jesus' fullness. And this is where he picks it up again. They've received from him such a plenty, such a pleroma of grace and truth that as the ancients fabled Mount Pelion to be piled upon Ossa by the giants to make a staircase to the skies, so our great Saviour has piled mountains of grace upon mountains of grace that on these... As on a stupendous ladder, his elect might climb to the throne of God. Yet not one step to heaven is other than of grace. All comes out of his fullness. So here's the progress, still primarily dealing with the exposition, the explanation of the text. The one glorious person, Jesus Christ, is, is the core of this verse. The two precious doctrines, that in him is all grace and all truth. He is the, the treasury, the repository of all God's favour and mercy. And then following on from that, that all the saints have received all of grace out of the fullness of Christ. We have received it in him. And that reception is the, is the very characteristic of our relationship and experience. And that brings us then to the three experiences that are indicated by the text. And now Spurgeon's shifting from the exposition toward the application. He's beginning to press it home into uh, our sense of who and what we are. And then the first experience that we need to understand is our own emptiness. If we're going to receive of this fullness of Christ, his grace and his truth, then we must first experience our own emptiness. 
It's a hard lesson for us to learn, says Spurgeon, hard going down the ladder of self-knowledge. We give up with great reluctance our flattering opinions of ourselves. We're hard to empty of the notion of our own inherent merit, and if the Lord spills that upon the ground, we then hold to the idea of our own inherent strength. That is, you know, I, I'm good enough. And if finally we can be persuaded that we're not good enough, we resort to, I can get good enough. I can do good enough. I can lift myself up. Spurgeon says, man is hard to be dragged away from the rock of self-justification. We cling to the notion that we can do what we need to ourselves. We can be what we need to be. But until we are emptied of self, we will not know the fullness of Christ. Our Lord withholds from those who are full, but he's always ready to give to those who are empty, says our preacher. Never does he keep back anything from those who are consciously in need. Never does he give aught, that is anything, to those who say they need nothing. There must be in each of us then an emptiness of self if we are to enjoy the fullness of Christ. So starting now to to move then into this uh, evangelistic mode, if you will, have you faced the fact? Have you today, those of you who are hearing this podcast, have you reckoned with your own emptiness? Have you come to understand that you have nothing to offer in terms of salvation? That brings us then to the second experience that is necessary, a personal reception of Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon asks the question, each of my hearers, especially professors of religion, have you received out of Christ's fullness? Now notice how he qualifies this now, or how he uh, explains this perhaps. I am not asking you whether you are church members. We sorrowfully know that it is one thing to be that, and quite another to receive Christ. I do not ask you whether you receive the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Alas, to receive bread and wine is a very different thing from feeding upon the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. The one is a carnal act which Judas might perform, who had a devil, and the other a spiritual act, possible only for spiritual men. Oh, says someone, do not put high standards before us. We've seen this before. It's a, a good technique, the, the preacher engaging with the conversation, uh, in conversation with the people who are in front of him, uh, sort of presuming upon or, or predicting what's going to be coming up in some people's minds. So one says, don't put high standards before us. Spurgeon, I'm not. I'm putting the lowest standard that can prove a soul to be saved. Have you received Christ? I want to call your attention to the marvellous simplicity of this one act by which salvation comes to all the saints. It is receiving. So we're back on this, this thread that he's picked up. Of his fullness we have all received. We are the ones who get from him. He is the giver. We are the recipients of his mercy. And Spurgeon says receiving is easy. There are 50 things which you and I cannot do, but you can receive. You can get what you don't have. You can take it if it's held out to you. You're a beggar, but if you just receive what God offers in Christ Jesus, then this mercy, this grace and truth will be yours. The saints all came to be saints and remain saints through doing exactly what a poor, black, leprous, quivering beggar's hand can do. All grace came by receiving. I'm not setting up a high test, says Spurgeon, but a safe and needful one. 
Have you received out of the fullness of Christ? Did you come all empty-handed and take Jesus Christ to be your all? And then the third blessed experience, the discovery that all we receive comes to us by grace. Look at the last words, he says, grace for grace. So still handling the text carefully, but bringing it to bear upon our souls, grace because of grace. So says Spurgeon, we get grace because of grace. Grace is the cause of itself. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He is gracious because he is gracious, and he gives grace to men not because they deserve it or ask for it, but because he is gracious and chooses to bless them. And he says, I want to know that you've all experienced this. If you know your own emptiness and Christ's fullness, I'm sure you know in a measure the doctrine of grace, and you'll grow more in that. You don't get some grace from God's grace and then add the rest by your own effort. No, you're always a receiver. The road to glory is paved with stones of grace. He says, To my mind, free will seems such an incongruity when tacked onto grace and makes a man's ministry like Nebuchadnezzar's image with its head of gold and its feet of clay. The two things do not consort, that is, they don't belong together. Now he has to press on because he's done his one, two, three. He's still got four and he's uh, probably a good uh, three quarters of the way through his sermon and he knows it. As briefly as possible, we shall speak of four duties. Again, it's good preaching, uh, showing that that you're aware of, of how things are progressing, where you are in the sermon. You can just let people know that you, you're aware there's not that much time left and, and you're going to press on now and, and move at speed and deal with things uh, quickly uh, and, and, and briefly. First of all, then, if we've received from Christ all we have, then let us praise him. Gratitude is a natural virtue and ought always to be in us a spiritual grace. Spurgeon says of himself, I'm a poor worm with nothing at all in myself that I could boast of, but if there be anything at all that could commend the gospel, I received it all from my dear Lord and Master, who's done more for me than tongue can tell. He says this, it's beautiful. One of the best ways of praising Jesus is by trusting him more. Faith is often compact praise. A trustful heart has in it the quintessence of music. Jesus loves to be trusted. It's a true if indirect form of gratitude when we repose confidence because of mercies received. So if you know that the Lord is gracious and you're trusting him, that in itself is an acknowledgement and a, and a declaration of the worthiness of Jesus Christ. You cannot do your Lord a better turn, he says, nor make his heart more glad by way of praising him than by opening your mouth wider than ever tonight that you may receive more out of his fullness than you have ever had since you have known him. So the first duty, praise him in whom there is a fullness of grace and truth. The second duty is this, if up till now we have received out of Christ's fullness, then let us repair to him again. He means let's go back to him again. Remember what you are. You're a receiver. If you've received, come and receive again. You have not received the whole of Christ's fullness yet, but all that is in Christ is meant to be received. Jesus Christ is like the sun. He's a storehouse of light, but the light is there to be shed abroad. He's like the clouds, a storehouse of waters, but all that is in him is to descend in showers upon thirsty souls. There is nothing in Christ but what was meant to be distributed. 
So you're really now into the the application of the sermon. And, and this is so sweet, isn't it? To think of the fact that all that is in Christ, that glorious fullness that is in him, that uh, wonder of, of mercy, of, of grace and of truth, all of that is given on to Christ for the purpose of being distributed amongst his people. It's not there treasured up in order to be kept away from us, but treasured up in order to be meted out to us. Then the third duty, if you've been receiving of Christ, try to obtain more. Grace for grace, grace to fit you for higher grace. Press on, says Spurgeon. Be righteously covetous of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Don't fall into what he calls an accursed contentment. Do wrestle for more grace. If you're up to your if you're up to your ankles, wade into this river of gracious fullness up to your knees. If you're up to your knees, be thankful, but do not be content. I ask you to advance till you're up to your loins and be not fully satisfied even then. Forget the things that are behind. Be not satisfied till you find a river to swim in. Strike out till you feel you're utterly out of your depth and then dive into it and strike out. Glory in Christ to think that it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell and be glad that you have learned to comprehend with all saints what are the heights and depths and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Oh, what a what a wonderful prospect. Not just comforts now, but exhortations. All that is in Christ is for you. So why hold back? Why not throw yourself, as it were, into Christ? Why not draw forth from him as much as he is willing to give? Why not take what he offers? So the last duty, encourage others to receive of him. Again, this comes out of our experience. Yes, we're empty, but yes, we've come to Christ. And yes, we've obtained more and more from him. So we encourage others to come too. What a wonderful text this is, says Spurgeon, for such a purpose. Of his fullness have all we received. You don't need to to hoard this grace of God. You don't need to hold on to it yourself. It won't be any the less because a thousand, thousand, thousand souls have received and enjoyed what Christ is willing to give them. Never since the world began, says Spurgeon, has been a sinner who sincerely asked for mercy through faith in the precious blood of Jesus who has been rejected. Since Adam was cast out of the garden, there's never been a sinner, whoever he might have been, that has cast himself by simple trust upon the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ whom God has cast out. Well, if they've received and all received of his fullness, why not you, says Spurgeon? And then one last little caution or concern that someone might say, well, perhaps the Lord will change his mode of dealing and reject me. Oh, but let me tell you, he says, he's pledged himself that he will not, for in addition to all those who have received at his hands as a promise given him, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you come to Christ then, heaven and earth may pass away and yon blue sky shall be folded up and put away as a worn out mantle and the stars shall fall like withered leaves in autumn and the sun be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. But never shall a praying, trusting sinner be cast away from the presence of God. Oh, come then, thou most guilty, thou most empty, thou most worthless, come and welcome. It's a glorious uh, conclusion to the sermon. It's, it's, it's Spurgeon saying, 
You know, there's there's no reason, there's nothing in you that should prevent you coming. In fact, all the need that you have, all the desperation of your circumstances, that should bring you to Jesus Christ. That should be what brings you to him as a saviour. That's precisely what you need and that's what you shall have if you come to him. So Spurgeon's carried us through. He's set before us Christ and he's given us to him as he's there in the text. He's given us those two glorious doctrines that there's all grace and truth in Christ and that it is there for all the saints. He's brought to bear those experiences by way of application. Have you realised that you in your emptiness need him in his fullness? Have you received that mercy from him? Have you come to Christ and had Christ for yourself? And have you realised how much of grace there is in him? And so then do you praise him? Do you go to him again and again? Do you seek more grace from him? And do you point others to him to go and be recipients themselves of the great mercy that there is from God in Christ Jesus? It's a wonderful sermon. It's beautifully and sweetly constructed. It carries us under that one, two, three, four structure through the uh, exposition of the text into its application, pressing home the truth upon both God's people for their comfort and encouragement and exhortation and also to those who need to come to Christ. There again you see Spurgeon's genius for the setting forth of Christ to hold him up he loves to do what the scriptures themselves do, and we have been the beneficiaries of it. I hope you have been a beneficiary even today, hearing more about this Jesus, full of grace and truth, of whose fullness of grace every child of God receives, of whose fullness of grace every sinner coming, pleading, empty, needy, receives all that he might require, all that she might wish for salvation now and forever. Do share more of this if, if you're able to. Do tell others uh, that not so much about Spurgeon, we're not so concerned about him, but, but tell people about Jesus Christ. And if you want to direct them here so that they can learn more of him, we would be delighted. We hope you'll join us too again next time when, God willing, if he spares you and me, we'll come to Sermon 867, Tearful Sowing and Joyful Reaping tearful sowing and joyful reaping our selected sermon as next week we read from sermon 864 to 870 in the metropolitan tabernacle pulpit uh, volume 15 until then may god bless us and fill our eyes and our hearts and our mouths with jesus christ